Today's episode is all about investing, specifically the use of risk assessments when you are investing and how these risk assessments interact with your portfolio. But after we've talked about that, we go into a wider discussion about active versus passive. What is a reasonable fee that you should expect to pay? Why so many active fund managers struggle to outperform the market? And we give a few examples there. So hopefully something for everyone, whether you're thinking about starting to get investing or whether you're an experienced investor. Now, this was originally made for YouTube and there are some slides. And of course, if you have questions and you're watching on YouTube, drop them in the comments and we'll try to get to them. Uh, but we thought we should also put this on the podcast as well, because it's a really valuable, simple guide to some key investing concepts. Thank you so much for listening and watching. And if you want to see more of this, you've got to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're watching on. As with all Medics Money content, remember, this is not investment advice. Do your own research, plus or minus hire a decent financial advisor. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So it's my pleasure to welcome back to this episode, Dennis Hall from Yellowtail Financial Planning. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Tommy. How are you? I am good. And I'm also excited to talk about this because we are talking about risk profiling questionnaires. And before everyone turns off and falls asleep, I think this is a massively underrated thing that, well, we're going to get into it, but let's just start with, you know, what is how does someone get to fill in a risk profiling questionnaire with you? Oh, well, they're, they're all over the place. Um, I've got a, I'm kind of introducing this talk with a slide uh, with, with a Tina Turner picture with that song, What's Risk Got To Do? What's risk got to do with it, got to do with it? What's risk with a second and emotion? What I think with risk profiling questionnaires is that they're there to try and get some measure of someone's emotional response to market volatility. And we'll unpack that as we go along. So a risk profiling questionnaire, what is it? Well, they're sort of questions that are designed to try and get an idea of what you're looking. A typical question might be something like, have you ever sold an investment solely because of a stock market decline? And yes, I've sold a lot. I've sold some. I didn't do anything. Maybe I bought some more or, or I just piled in because I now see the stock. That's trying to measure, begin to put a score against something. But when were these risk profiling questionnaires introduced? Well, we've had regulation in this country since uh, 1988, and I was already working. So I was at the time before there was no uh, investment regulation, no, no financial advice regulation. But I didn't begin to see risk profiling questionnaires until about 2000, you know, the, the turn of the, of the millennium, really, when we had a, a new regulator, the Financial Services Authority, which is now the Financial Conduct Authority, and you might remember, people are old enough, that we had the uh, the internet bubble, the crash. 
And there were all kinds of people who had been piling in or told to pile in to internet stocks, seeing reductions of perhaps 90% or more on the value of their investments. And so people were beginning to complain, but there was no mechanism against which they could complain. And then we had that 2008 market crash when, again, I think there was another wave. And I believe this was compliance driven so that firms were saying, well, if we've had if people are complaining that we've given them bad advice and their investments have fallen, how are we going to measure that? Because there is no regulatory requirement to do a risk profiling questionnaire that's not been driven by the regulator. I believe it's been driven by compliance departments saying, well, if we ask people questions about what their risk profile is and we invest them that way, if markets fall or do something wrong, well, we're protected. And I can see some reasoning behind that. And I can also see some reasoning behind why people should have some form of risk assessment done. But I don't believe it should be a risk assessment that is built along pretty much a pain scale you know we're reframing this you know we're, we're, we're looking at people uh, we're talking to people who are medics today and they're probably familiar with a pain scale when you go into a to a hospital which I've, I've i've got a slide for this it's probably very familiar that we talk about you know if this describe your pain today i'm no pain and it's green and lovely i'm in extreme pain and it's red and i'm angry and somehow we've reframed the investment story around no pain is things like cash where there's no volatility and real pain is things like investing in the stock market where things go up or down. And then we talk to people. We use phrases like, well, if you want to make some return, there's no pain, there's no gain. We're talking about investments as though they're painful. And that's not really the way to go in, in, in my book. And, and I see it also often. There's a, I've got a couple of slides, I think, where we look at um, risk profiling questionnaires, common risk profiles, where if you're conservative and green and safe, and we talk about words like aggressive and moderately aggressive um, and, uh, in conjunction with higher risk. Um, and I think there's a, you know, if we talk about conservative, there's another slide, which is again using those colors. Cash is green and very, very safe stocks are red and they're not that safe. So all the time, we're really relating to risk and risk and, and volatility as something back along that pain scale. If we just remind people what that is again on, on that next slide, we've got that pain scale again. And I find that most people, if they're told you've got to take a little bit of pain to get the returns that you want, that most people will begin to say, well, if I've got to take some pain, I can I can maybe withstand something in that yellow or orange period. So when I look at the results from risk profiling questionnaires, it's like that, that typical bell curve. Most people will fall somewhere in the middle. And for most people, I think that's a suboptimal place to be. And we can look at that as later on in this in our conversation today. But I believe that risk profiling tools are driving people to take that middle path because we're talking to people about pain and we're not talking to people about what their money needs to do for them. There are different stories. I mean, all the time we're doing is measuring volatility and I've got a chart along here to try and demonstrate that. Those wavy lines at the top are all types of equities, whether it's um, uh, global equities, emerging market equities, and the straight lines are things like cash and, and, and bonds. 
So most people would love the straight line. There's no sort of excitement in that. But when I ask them what sort of returns they would like at the end of the day, if we start doing some cash flow modeling about what their money needs to do, they need to be following a more volatile path. And volatility is just one small aspect and measure of risk. There are so many other types of risk that we need to be cognizant of, be aware of. Um, and I can run through a couple of those because they come up in my conversations as well. There's market risk. And I think to some extent, that's what we're looking at. The market will go up and down. And by market, I mean stock markets. But it could be bond markets. It could be property markets. It doesn't matter what you're invested in. There is some risk. But there's another type of risk that we need to be aware of, and that's liquidity risk. So we, I find a lot of people come to me and say, well, I really like the idea of building a buy-to-let portfolio. But the problem with, with property and big lumpy things like that is sometimes it can take a long time to sell. If the market goes down and you, you've, you're holding out for a price, you're not going to get that. Um, so there's liquidity risk, there's concentration risk about putting all of your assets into one particular area. So that could be property, that could be cash, that could be bonds, that could be a specific stock. I have talked to a lot of people that have worked for large multinational corporations where they get stock options and they put all of their sort of spare bonuses into their stock options. And the banking crisis of 2008 really brought it home. You know, I was working in the city and I was people coming in and saying, well, you know, I've got my pension from the bank, but the bit that allows me to retire early and do some of the more exciting things that I want to do is the few hundred thousand pounds that I've built up in stock options that I'm going to cash out when I retire, all tax-free and very nice, thank you. And then the market crashed and they lost 90% of the value of their stocks. So there's concentration risk. There is credit risk. So people are uh, trying to buy into high yielding bonds um, because it looks like an interest rate and they think the word bond is safe. Um, but then they find out that the company doesn't make the profits, they can't pay the dividend or they can't pay the, the coupon on that bond. Um, and, and maybe you know, occasionally bonds fail, as with companies. So you've got those sort of problems there, that sort of asset linked risk. And below the line, we've got a little bit of inflation. People ignore inflation. Cash tends to fall behind inflation and, and your investments by the time you've taken tax off. If you're being too safe, you're not, your money's not even keeping pace with the cost of living. Then there's longevity. A lot of people anchor perhaps to their parents and their grandparents, the age at which they, they die or whatever, but people are living longer. We have seen this in pensions and why everyone is being moved out of sort of final salary pension schemes because the actuaries and the, and the costs of a longer living uh, retirement pool of, of people that are retired we just can't afford that. We've got foreign exchange is another kind of risk. If you're getting any of your, sometimes people have worked abroad, they've got pensions from overseas, they have investments overseas, that impacts on that because you can't guarantee that what it's worth over there is when it's converted back into sterling is what it's going to be over here. And then there is horizon. Stop me, by the way, if I'm going on too long or you need clarification. But I find there's horizon risk as well is that we're pretty much able to, to think about what's going to happen over the next three to five years and, and look at our money and invest our money that way. But when we start looking at 10, 15, 20, 30 and 40 years, it's, it's way too far in the future. And we can't really, I suppose, make sensible investment decisions thinking about our 20, 30 or 40 year time frame. So we always think, well, I might need my money in the next three to five years and take very short term investment decisions. That's you know, it's, it's common. A lot of people do that. I guess myself included. 
I have to train myself to look long term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't need a clarification because I love this kind of stuff. But for the benefit of our listeners, let me just do a summary and you correct me if I'm wrong. So if somebody comes to you today or tomorrow, wants to do some investing as a regulated financial advisor, you are basically duty bound to use some kind of risk profiling tool. And you discussed why they were up. I made a mistake already. I'm not duty bound (laughs) to put in a risk profiling tool. The requirement is that I have to know my client or know my customer, KYC. So I have to know my client. I have to know enough about them to, to ensure that whatever investments I put them into are appropriate for them. And that might not have anything to do necessarily with their emotional response to market volatility. If they need to take higher risk in order to achieve their objectives, and they've got the time frame to do that, my job is to educate and to show why this is going to happen. I don't use risk profiling questionnaires. I stopped doing that probably about five years ago because it was leading too many people to not take enough investment risk. We're having difficult conversations around this. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a balanced profile investor, and I'm saying but a balanced portfolio isn't going to get you to where you want to be. The money will run out by the time you're 80, and you could live until you're 90. So we've got to look beyond your comfort and show you that you can afford to take that risk and help you get comfortable taking that risk. Because I've got lots at the, the archetypal little old lady in their 80s I've got, you know, I, I, who come to me and, and they've been left portfolios of, of, of shares, predominantly shares, and they say, if you tell me to sell some of these shares and put into cash, I'm walking out of here. These have done very well for me. I've been, you know, I've had this portfolio for 20 or 30 years. I know that it goes up and down and I know it works. So there's the benefit of hindsight for you. And it does work. So anyway, I interrupted. So I, I, (laughs) sorry, Tommy. No, I, I just think like it's important. Basically, the goal here is to match your portfolio to your goals and your long term aspirations. Like you said, use cash flow modeling to make sure that you know, you're going to get the returns you need. And then also match that portfolio to your risk tolerances and preferences. And I think that mismatch between portfolio volatility, shall we call it, and risk tolerances is a major cause of people, especially if they're DIY investing. They're like, oh, S&P's on a streak. It's hot right now. Uh, You see it all everywhere online. Uh, The S&P returns 10% a year. Hold on. That's the annualized return. One year, it might be 30% up. The next year, it could be 40% down. But when you annualize it over 20, 30 years, yeah, it's 10%. So like, I like to, <laughs> I have like a love-hate relationship with robo-advisors, which is basically a way where you can invest without using a financial advisor, but getting some kind of help. And they will definitely use a risk profile questionnaire. And then I go through that process and I look at it and I think, okay, well, at least they're getting started investing. And then you read the uh, online reviews and it's like the S&P 500 has returned 10% this year. My portfolio has returned 1%. This robo-advisor is terrible. And it's like, no, you skipped the education bit. You didn't even understand what you're investing. And guess what? Because you went through the risk questionnaire saying like, I don't want to lose money. I'm really cautious. You're 80% in bonds. 80% in bonds, 20% equities is never going to outperform, very rarely going to outperform the S&P 500. And so it's like, 
they've skipped that education step. And if you skip that education step, uh, you're probably going to make a mistake. You are. And I think they've got the wrong horizon. If they're looking at that over, over a year, I mean, you shouldn't be investing in the markets over a year unless you're, a, you know, you're, I don't know, some kind of excitement junkie. You're, you know, you want the roller coaster ride. It's, it's not what it's about. Investing is different to speculating. And we're not going to get into that today because there's so many other things we can talk about. But getting the right horizon, we talked about earlier, so getting the right time frame is good. I was going to mention something about capacitive loss. I think there are three areas, really. There's what does your, how much risk do you need to take? How much risk do you want to take? How much risk can you afford to take? And that is a, a really difficult conversation, trying to marry those things together. Because if they're all, if they're not in sync, you've got to somehow squeeze them into something that makes sense. And it might mean that people don't quite get the retirement that they hoped for because they're not prepared to take enough risk or they can't afford to take enough risk. So there are some trade-offs in all of these things. And the, you know, the financial conduct authority, the regulator, are beginning to see this. You know, they're talking a lot more about capacity for loss rather than someone's attitude to investment risk. Attitude to investment risk is the least important part of it. I'm saying that because it's an emotional response and you can and you can be trained out of that emotional response. It's probably because you've heard stories or you've met people that have lost everything on the stock market. Well, they've not. They've not invested. They've speculated. And if we can stop people speculating and start marrying up those three things, needs, tolerance and capacity, I think we begin to get people on a, on a much better path. Yeah, definitely. And just because we're trying to educate people here. So some people might not be confident with the difference between like risk capacity for risk, as I, as I understand it, is basically, uh, OK, Tommy, if you invested this a thousand pounds and it went to zero tomorrow, could you afford to lose that a thousand pounds? That's my capacity for risk, because if I could afford it, then, yeah, my capacity for risk is high uh, versus my risk tolerance, which is like if I'm sat there every day, like watching the ticker, uh, logging on and then I phone up Dennis. I'm like, Dennis is down 2% today. Dennis, I've lost five pounds. You know, that's that's your risk tolerance. So capacity for risk is different from your risk tolerance, which is what we're talking about with these questionnaire things. Is that yeah, right? One's an emotional response. Yeah, I can't I don't like it going up and down. Yeah, but stretch it out over five, 10, 15 years and just look how, much, how well it's done. Do you like that return? And we can, I've got a slide in a moment which will kind of look at that. The capacity thing is, is very important because if you're building up a sum of money in order to retire on and then the stock market crashes the day that you retire, the capacity is I shouldn't have had all of my money invested. But my capacity is actually I've got a reserve fund in cash that will last me. You know, I can draw down on that alongside my pension for the next, you know, uh, three to five years, if necessary, if this is a long drawdown. So that capacity is, is if, if you've got reserve funds, you can take more risk with your investments. And sometimes people pull the two together and in their, in their retirement portfolio, they've got both cash bonds and, and, and equities. And in what proportion is going to be appropriate for their, for their needs. So I've got a slide that looks at some, some numbers uh, on investment returns that sort of when I ask people how much you want from, you know, I, I've got that graph that I showed earlier on with the, with the straight lines and the spiky lines, and, and these are the returns from it. So um, if you'd invested a, a sum of money uh, 40 years ago, uh, it could have grown, I think this is a thousand pounds. If you invested a thousand pounds over a 30 year period, sorry, 
it could have grown to anywhere between 2,470 and 23,000 pounds. And I asked people, so if you were investing for 30 years, which line do you want? And they all want that 23,000 pound line. Of course they do. And when you start to, if you can stretch it out, you said if they were all straight lines, everyone would plump for the 23,000. When you start putting in the, the, the volatility, they get a little bit scary because they focus in on that three to five year volatility period and say, oh, I could have lost money over that period. Well, only if you cashed it out. But the returns that you're getting for that, the percentage returns um, from 23,000 pounds or between that sort of 2,470 and, and 23, which is on the next slide, those percentage returns equate to different lines on that original chart. So we've got 3.1%. That's the average return from cash over the last 30 years. So people who are you know, risk averse and putting all my money in cash, you've got 3.1%. Um, two and a half thousand pounds. A little bit more risk in, in government bonds at 3.2% per annum. If we, the area that I start to put people into really are sort of global equities, a portfolio of global equities across all markets, across all company sizes, would have returned, and these are all before charges, by the way, about 8.9% on average over return. And that top one there, the over that period, was emerging markets, a particular sector in emerging markets. So you could have got 11% per annum, but much more volatile. And actually, I, I really don't put people there. But that 8.9% per annum is pretty good. After charges, and I think people should be expecting to pay at least 1% charges, but I know that depending where you go, you could be spending a lot more. Charges are incredibly important. Take the market return. And I'm sort of doing a, I'm just doing a little detour here because I think charges are really, really important. Over a 40-year period, this is one pound invested over a 40-year period. And if you had never paid fees, that one pound would grow to 15 pounds. That's a straight 7% return. Well, you can't invest without fees, whether that's advisor fees, platform fees, fund manager fees, all kinds of fees. I like to try and, you know, with our, with our clients, if we can cap fees to around 1% all in with funds, platforms and my costs as well, that's still about a third of the money over 30 years is just swallowed up in fees. If you're paying 2%, and I know there are wealth management firms out there that would have around 2% with their platforms, advice, initial charges, exit charges, all that kind of thing, that would equate to around 2%, you are going to halve the value of your capital. Half of your return has gone. And if you're one of those unlucky people that are paying 3% and they're out there because there are, you, you know, you can buy the most expensive platform, you can have the widest spreads on your funds, you can be paying the most expensive fund manager charge, and then a chunk of advice on top. If you're losing 3% a year, two thirds of your money's gone. If all they're getting is market returns, and I'm going to come to that later, if all you're getting are market returns, two thirds of that return has gone. So pay more attention to fees than you do about trying to find which stock or which fund to buy. Buy the market, control the fees, because that's the easiest thing to do. I'm so glad you brought up fees because we don't talk about this enough. And this is something that we are really keen on at Medics Money and partly why we started Medics Money, because there are advisors out there who, in my mind, are exploiting the financial naivety of doctors by charging ridiculously high fees. It's about a fair fee for fair advice. That's what it should be. Uh, 3%, like if you think 3% looks bad on that chart, wait until you like add a zero or a couple of zeros to these numbers of, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's extortionate. And I think like 
one misconception a lot amongst a lot of people is that financial advisors are there to help you pick stocks and be like, they phone you up and be like, right, Tommy, sell Apple and buy Samsung or whatever. Actually, that is like the complete opposite. I would never pay for performance by what I mean is a, someone comes along with their shiny brochure and they say, well, Tommy, look, my fees are 3% and Dennis is charging 1% bar. I am going to outperform the market for you. That's why my fees are 3%. And by the way, I've got a really shiny brochure and I'm wearing a really shiny suit as well. I would never pay for performance because as you said, the evidence is in the long term that they do not outperform the market, a globally diversified index portfolio strategy. But I would definitely pay for advice, which is where I phone up Dennis and say, Dennis, I know you told me that like 80% uh, equities was good, but I'm having a real panic. Should I sell? And you're like, okay, Tommy, calm down. Like, let's zoom out on that chart and let's not do anything crazy. Like you haven't lost money unless you sell. Like you just said, I love that phrase. So that's why I think you've got to think about don't pay for performance, consider paying for advice. And if your advisor is not having an open and transparent discussion with you about fees at the first meeting, get a new advisor, come to Medics Money, go see Dennis, something like that. Yeah. Hopefully that's not too controversial because I get, I literally get hate mail on LinkedIn. I know that you know which firm it will come from. And I know that every financial advisor listening to this knows which firm I'll be getting hate mail from. I don't say it because we'll get like in trouble, which is absolutely crazy. But what I will say is that this firm in question is listed on the stock market and their share price has absolutely tanked recently because somebody's gone over their charges with a fine rule and gone, oh my God, this is outrageous. And as a result, I think their stock is down 40% for the year. So I think it's, it's, um, yeah, charges are very, very important. And I think you, know, you were talking about the, the benefit of advice. So what is advice? Well, we can't get into that today, but it's, there's a lot around planning. So understanding capacity for loss, because we're talking about risk, begin that education process for those people that need it. And not everyone does, by the way. You know, there are a lot of very, very knowledgeable people out there who have already got this, but not everyone does. You know, you get wrapped up in the day job. And again, there's a lot of that background of your parents, your grandparents may have suffered or not. You know, it may not have come from an environment where investments are uh, sort of an everyday thing. And you may be earning the kind of money that maybe your parents never did. So it's it, it could be new and there's nothing at all wrong with that. There's nothing at all wrong about saying, I don't understand, but I want to understand. And a lot of my understanding has come from a, a lot of reading and, and if we think about it, where does our education come from? Well, a lot of us, we start reading the financial magazines, uh, the Sunday press, the money sections. And, I, and whilst I know many of the reporters there, I know they are not necessarily swayed by the advertisers. The thing is, they come to people like me for their knowledge and to get their understanding for their writing a story. So the industry is trying to train and training the people. And actually, we need to be going to, I suppose, those people that don't have a financial interest in whether the markets are going up and down. So I do, a, I, I get a lot of my reading and research from academics that just look for things and look for patterns and look for trends. Um, so a lot of my investment philosophy comes from um, some Nobel Prize winning economists who have looked at relationships. But here's a good book. Um, I, I'm not encouraging anyone to go out and buy this because it costs about £100. Um, but these are the guys, uh, you've got uh, Professor Dimson from, uh, I think it was the London School of Economics when they wrote this, and they were looking at 100 year, 101 years of global investment returns. And by far and away, the investment place to be is stock markets over the long term. And that's not anything you would hear. So if you're thinking about somebody that is, um, they do a risk profile question is they'll probably get into a 50-50 stocks and bonds, 60-40 stocks and bonds. 
it's not optimal. It's not going to deliver for them. If they were going to die by the time they were 75 and retire at 65, that might be a good place to be. But it's not if you're thinking of retiring at 60, 65, and you're going to be living until you're 85, 90, 95. You cannot afford not to take risk. So Yeah, just um, sorry to interrupt, but just because I want to drag as many non-investors, people that are sat there thinking, right, I thought cash was safe, but it turns out Dennis just told me over the long term, cash is not that safe. Uh, so you're, we're, get, we're getting into bonds a bit and we're saying we're not, we're not enjoying bonds uh, too much because long term, long term, they underperform equities as evidenced by this chart that we're looking at here. Can we just briefly like explain what bonds are really simply and their role in the portfolio? Because depending on your investment timelines, when you need the money uh, and your attitude to risk and capacity for risk, some bonds might might be useful. But your overall point is that basically, and correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but perhaps too many people have got too many bonds when if you're in it for the long term, a high percentage of global market equities makes more sense. But can we just get like a quick rewind for because I don't want to lose people here as much as I would like to talk about the really complex stuff. And we'll get to that. I think we should just try to explain about bonds. Because so this graph about, is awesome. Yeah. So we think about bonds. Uh, let's look at governments when they want to raise money for big projects, long-term projects. They've got, a, they've got some mechanisms where they will pay interest through national savings. Just like a bank account, you're going to have some interest. But if they want to raise large amounts of cash, they go to the market and say, we as the government, we're putting our, you know, we're putting the country, we're putting the government behind us. We want to raise 500 million pounds. We've got some hospitals to build. We've got some power stations to build. Pay this money back over 30 years at this particular interest rate. If we pay you a 5% interest rate for each 100 pounds, what am I bid? And someone might say, well, interest rates at the moment are, are high. 5% is not great. But I know I'm going to get my 100 pounds back and I'm going to get 5%. But I might only pay £90 for that today. So the government get the £90, but they know they're going to be paying. If interest rates are very, very low, you know, sort of 1%, we've had that for a while, and some comes out with a 5%, an investor might say, do you know, a 5% guaranteed for the next 30 years by the government? And I don't think interest rates are going to go anywhere very quickly. Um, I'll pay £110 for that, for that piece of paper. I get my £100 back, but along the way I've had my 5%. So the interest rates are very, very crucial to what people will pay for a bond at any time because bonds are traded. So the, the actual capital value of a bond moves up and down broadly in line with interest rates and outlook for interest rates, what an interest rate is going to do over the lifetime of that bond. And most governments, you know, Western governments, are, we think they're pretty secure. So we don't think they're going to run away with our money. We know we're going to get our money back. But there are other people who issue bonds. It's not just the government. So corporations, in order for them to raise money, they may have to pay higher rates of interest, high yielding bonds. You don't necessarily, if they don't make profits as a company, they're not necessarily able to pay the the coupon that they've promised to pay. So again, that can increase or decrease the capital price of that bond. So if you buy a bond on day one, you don't know what you can sell it for until the redemption date, the final date, at which point you know you get your nominal £100 back. But it could the price could vary at any time in the interim. And we've just seen that. People have been buying bonds for the last 15 years, since about 2008, when we've had interest rates at a very, very low rate. People have been prepared to pay 
a lot of money to get a higher yield, a, a higher annual income. Then, it, then Liz Trust came in, quasi cartang and off we go. Interest rates suddenly go up to the moon. The value of that interest, the coupon from those bonds, is no longer as attractive. Nobody's paying for it. The capital price of those bonds collapsed. So bonds themselves, they're not necessarily less risky. They can be as volatile as equities. But all you're getting is what somebody felt they wanted to. And, and let's face it, a, a government or a corporation isn't going to overpay to borrow money. They're going to put it out to the market and see what they get. So they're going to try and, I want to borrow this as cheaply as I possibly can. Equities, which I think is why you're getting higher growth, is you're investing in the returns of that company. Okay, so the bondholders get first shout at any, you know, the profits come in or the, they've got their reserves, they've got to pay out the bondholders if they've got the money. But then the rest really gets allocated to the shareholders either as dividends or in an increased share price, because people see that as a value. And let's face it, when we're investing in companies, we're investing in ourselves. We're investing in people who go out to work every day with the sole objective of making whatever they need to, to uh, live and enhance their life. We're not going out to shirk. Certainly, 99% of people don't go out to work to shirk. They go out to work because they want to improve their lives. So you want to be investing in people and their energy and the and the, the effort that they put in and, and what they bring to the workplace. That's why I'm, you know, one of the reasons I'm attracted to, to investing in shares is I'm investing in everyone who, get, who gets up in the morning and goes out to work. It's as simple as that for me. Yeah, awesome. Hopefully that helps people just understand what bonds are. And essentially you're buying other people's debt, whether that be government debt or uh, anyone's debt, which is perhaps a bit more risky as you outlined. And their traditional role in the portfolio is as a diversifier, really, and to kind of smooth out that volatility that we can see on this uh, line. But I think, yeah, we're getting into why why that might not be a good idea. Okay, cool. Uh, right, back to the awesome slides. So I wondered, yeah, so um, I've been doing some work recently where we've been looking at, to put some context in it, it's not retirement. This person was getting divorced, the person aged 50, and they wanted part of that divorce settlement said, I need 40,000 a year to retire. Uh, index linked, you know, quite a quite a chunky divorce, and that income needed to be payable until death, and the fund to be exhausted on death. This isn't about creating wealth. The actuarial calculation said they needed six hundred ninety-two thousand to achieve that because they assumed she had a life expectancy of thirty-three years, i.e., to age eighty-three. Probability of her living to age ninety was was about fifty percent. You know, so on that calculation, she was going to. You know, even even if she'd invested in lines with that actuarial calculation, she was going to run out of money. But the moment she gets the money, if she's had no education, you know, the solicitor, they signed the paper. The moment she gets the money, she says, well, I'm risk averse. So I'm, I'm going to keep the money in cash. And, and what I'm looking at here is the returns from different asset classes going back about 115 years and then taking all the rolling periods of that. So I'm, I'm, I'll say so. If you had um, started drawing that down in 1915, how long would the money last? 1916, 1917, and those rolling periods in that asset class, and to try and get an average. And what this was saying was that the money was going to run out in about 17 years. On average, when you start looking at all the permutations of uh, keeping the money in cash, it was going to run out in 17 years. Well, that's not good. If you start coming to an advisor and start saying, well, you know, you have that risk profiling questionnaire and say, well, maybe I'm a balanced investor then. So you're invested from age 50. The money runs out on average within about 23 years. 
sometimes in a worst case scenario, as early as 66 years, only 16 years worth of, of return before the funds run out. And in the best case scenario, it lasted about 38 years. But these are the extremes. On average, people's money was going to be running out on a 50-50 portfolio in about uh, 23 years. If I've got people that are retiring at 60 and they think all of their money's gone by the time they're 83, that's not a good conversation to have on their 84th birthday. And when you say balance, just to clarify, you're talking, are you talking 50% cash or, and 50% equities? Or are you saying 50% bonds and 50% equities? 50% equities. Always leaving a sort of, uh, only your emergency fund should be in cash. The money you need to hold on to for, for a period of time. I'm being made redundant. I need cash. Whatever it is, there's an emergency fund. The conversations I was having a few years ago was to try and move people up that risk and profile to try and push people along. People who had historically thought they were balanced investors to say no. We've been able to move most people to to at least 70-30 and our, our work is not done because we are pushing against emotions. But if we push against that emotion and we get people to go from 50-50 to 70-30, it moves it from a sort of a 23-year period to a sort of a 20 eight year period. But the worst case scenario isn't any worse. And the best case scenario is better. But 70-30, our job isn't done. I don't, I don't think we are now moving so many more clients into 90-10 portfolios. I'm 100% invested in shares in my pension fund. I've got my emergency fund elsewhere. Um, but I'm 100% invested in shares. So actually, I'm hoping to get a slightly better return than this. But this pushes out somebody um, a, a sort of a 44-year period. On average, those equities are going to run out, are going to last. The fund's not going to be exhausted for 44 years. If you're a 60-year-old retiring, that's going to take you beyond age 100. I think that's a pretty good margin. The worst case scenario is still no worse than holding it in cash, 50-50, 70-30 is still no worse. So where is the risk in taking the risk? The risk is in not taking the risk because the best case scenario says you don't run out of money. You actually leave behind an enormous legacy. So for me, just buying more shares for your long-term goals and objectives, this is retirement, and anyone who's working now in their 20s and 30s and they're investing. If anyone tries to put you into a, a balanced portfolio, you need to, be, I mean, I was gonna say smack them in the mouth, but you probably get arrested for that. But you've got to walk out of there and just say, you are not advising me. You're just taking an easy path. All you're doing is getting me to fill in a tick box around my comfort level around investments. You need to be teaching me this stuff, this stuff. Show me what my best and worst case scenarios are depending on which path I take. And when you start presenting evidence like this, and it might take a little bit of time, as I say, we've been moving people to, from, from those sort of 60, 40 portfolios that they all come to us with into sort of 70, 30, 80, 20, and 90, 10. And, and, and I don't have many clients that are like me, 100% invested in, in, in equities, but there are some. And they're reaping the rewards. It doesn't get apply to many of our listeners, but the biggest offenders of putting young people with a 50-year investment timeline into a 60% stocks, 40% bonds portfolio are pension schemes because they're like, uh, right, we just invest the same for everybody, whether you're a 25-year-old employee or a 65-year-old employee. It's like at either end of that scale, someone's losing out in a big way. So yeah, 
And I am also 100% equities for the reason that you mentioned. It's important to clarify that we're saying 100% equities, but in a globally diversified portfolio. I don't buy individual stocks and shares. You're nodding as well. So I'm guessing that's the same for you. We're not talking about individual stocks and shares. We're saying we're buying all of the best companies in the world via a globally diversified low cost index tracker. And then we just keep adding to it and sit sit back and try not to check it, especially when uh, things are volatile. I, I check it every day, though. I mean, I, <laughs> and I shouldn't, but I just want to see what's happening. I've got to have conversations with my clients. So if I, if, if I know the market's down, I need to be aware of that because they're going to feel a little glum. I, I like at the start of my investing journey, I also used to check it all the time. But then I just realized that that was no good for me because I'm not going to change the plan. I'm 100% confident in my plan. And if I check it, I'm either going to feel really happy or really sad. And there's just no point. So I think I realized I might have taken that strategy a bit too far the other day because I logged into one of my accounts, which has just got a direct debit going into it automatically every month. And it said, your last login was 2021. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, uh, probably should log into that one a bit sooner. But you know what? When I logged in and I started looking at it, it was like, overall, you have made, you know, uh, 8% this year and 6% last year and 12% the year before. And then when I actually looked in the monthly amounts because of the volatility, some months I lost more money there than I earned working as a doctor. But because I didn't check it, I didn't notice. And then overall, over a long period of time frame, the number is massively up. So that is why I don't check it. Dennis, you've, you've got a good reason to check it because this, this is your job. But yeah, I very rarely check mine. Uh, like, yeah, 2021 was one time I last logged into one of my accounts. And I used to have people check it and ring me up and I used to have a stock, I mean, some stock answers. I, I, I ran a seminar for clients, oh, probably a decade ago now. Um, and there was a guy called um, uh, Professor John Coates. I think that's the name off the top of my head. He wrote a book called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, which is an amazing title. One of the few books I've read twice. Um, he had been a trader on Wall Street when they had the first meltdown. And he was looking at how people reacted to the meltdown. Younger, keener, probably more clever traders, but were just they were panicking. Whereas the old guys that had been through cycles just kind of it's just it's just another day slightly more exciting maybe it was just another day so he he stopped being a trader and went to cambridge university i think to research what was happening in the brain and the, as i say the book is a really good read but you know when things happen to us it's an emotional response and it's all sort of linked to that fight flight freeze sort of responses that we have when we see something happening to our money and we are emotionally attached to our money if we see the markets go down we think we've got to do something there's an instant reaction i need to sell i need to do something but actually what you really need to do is some physical exercise or something else to try and just get rid of the adrenaline that has popped you know it's coursing through your body when you've just opened the screen seeing that the value of your investments has fallen by a third which can happen so yeah, I, I just tell my my kids to go out and mow the lawn or um, jump on the bike and go for a bike ride or something. Get rid of the energy. If I still feel a little bit concerned afterwards, then give me a call and we'll talk about it. But if we've done the financial planning right at the outset, we know what their capacity for loss is like. We know what they need to take after a bike ride or mowing the lawn. They just get right back to the original reasons why we're invested in, in the way that we are and say, it's okay. I was just having a moment. And everything is trying to push you off of that path. You mentioned financial journalists uh, before. Now, their job is to sell newspapers. And if a headline every day is just buy and hold a globally diversified index portfolio for 40 years and you'll be fine, 
They ain't going to sell them in the newspapers. They need to be like, guess what? Today, this went up. The, the market has crashed. It's like, the market's not crashed. It's just normal stock market volatility. Like the volatility is the price you pay for the outsized gains that you get versus cash. So there's a whole industry of people whose job it is to just make you not to, to behave badly and like think, right. oh, there is a crash. I should sell. Uh, and my second point was there's a rise of investing now is way easier than when I first started 13 years ago. And on balance, I think that's a great thing. Like we need more people to invest. But the problem is the incentives don't always align. And we've got these apps now where they're like sending you notifications. Your portfolio is up 1%. Your portfolio is down 1% because that app actually wants you to trade. Because guess what? Every time you trade, they get a fee. Like the incentives are not aligned. And uh, this is not a Vanguard advert, by the way. But everyone always says, if you read the feedback for Vanguard, it's like they don't have an app. I love the fact that Vanguard don't have an app because that just means I, I have to find my login to go and check it. And then I think, oh, I can't be bothered to go and check it. And that's how I end up not logging in since 2021. So we just have to be careful. Like there's all these people trying to push you off of and make you do bad behavior, but they have their reasons for that. And I'm not criticizing them. They've got to make newspaper. People have got to sell newspapers and apps got to make money. But there's lots of people trying to persuade you to do something other than just sit back. Don't panic, ignore the noise. And if you look at a chart like this, which is running what, this is Monte Carlo simulation, right? It's um, a, a more deterministic, but very similar, yes. Yeah, okay, cool. I, I like to look at this next slide. Let's go to the next slide, because uh, <laughs> this is a hill that I'm gonna die on as well. It looks <laughs> like you are too. Yeah, well, and, and same here. You know, there are so many ways of investing. Um, and uh, I have a little bit of active, active management in my portfolio because I, and I'll tell you what that is. It's private equity. I, buy, I have a private equity investment trust that I've had for more than 20 years and it's done very well for me. But there's, it's a whole section of the market that doesn't get replicated in the index because it's private equities, companies that are not on market um, and that are being developed and groomed off site. So I want some of that return in my portfolio. And I'm not saying everyone does uh, and, or needs it, but, but I do. And I have that particular investment trust because I got to know them very, very closely. The chairman was a client of mine at one point until he retired. So I got to understand the philosophy very closely. But the rest of my portfolio, is evidence-based investing trackers it's not active and there's a strong reason for that as this chart says that based on the uh, the s p uh, europe 350 active funds compared to passive funds 84 percent of them had underperformed over the last 10 years and that's not just the europe market it's all markets that gets replicated just to de-jargon this a bit as well because uh, lots of people will be nodding about this and, and saying yeah uh, but active investing is where a highly paid fund manager says, right, uh, I'm not just going to track the market. I'm going to beat the market and I'm going to beat the market by having insights and trading. And, you know, like the traditional kind of view of what stock brokers do uh, versus uh, passive investing, which essentially just buy an index and an algorithm tracks that index. They don't trade. So just is that just a quick uh, sort of description of active versus passive? And it can be a really, you would think like, and the media wants you to think that active investors running around the stock markets, wearing red braces, shouting, sell, sell, buy, buy. You would think that that would outperform just simply buying a passive index and doing nothing for a long, long time. And that's what the media want you to think. But as Dennis's slide is showing you here, 84% of active funds underperformed the market index. And there's that classic bet, isn't there, from um, Charlie Munger just died, which was obviously uh, sad, but Warren Buffett's classic bet, who uh, he bet Buffett, some... Yeah. 
Buffett bet a load of active managers that over 10 years, that, that a passive fund that Buffett picked could outperform their active fund. And it didn't just outperform, so, the pa doing nothing outperformed them by absolutely miles. In fact, they actually threw the towel in about a couple of years early because they were like, there's no way we're going to catch up. So this can be quite a mindset shift to just think. So yeah, I think, does that, is that cover active versus passive? Because I think it's so important to understand this difference. And again, it's somewhere where the media is trying to make you think something that maybe isn't helpful. It is. I think passive is actually quite a broad thing. You've used the words several times, index. Indexing is 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 a form of passive investing. Passive is saying we're not doing anything. You could be a buy and hold, but you could be a very selective buy and hold. I just feel like indexing, very little turnover in the portfolio. And we can sort of demonstrate because it, it, it's, we're not saying that every active manager is uh, useless. Some perform very, very well. And some can perform well for a particular period of time. We, we don't always know why, we we'll assume it's skill. But let's just take a look at the United States. And the S&P 500, probably the, possibly the biggest market, a lot of attention, a lot of fund managers thinking they can beat the S&P 500. So over a one-year period, about 40% of managers in, uh, in the year to June 23, almost 40% of managers were able to outperform. This chart won't tell us by how much, but they were able to outperform. But it's still a minority. If we move to the next chart and sort of extend that over five years, only about 13% of funds and fund managers had been able to outperform the market as a whole. Over a much longer period, 15 years, and we're talking about people's retirement funds, less than 8% of funds had been able to outperform the market as a whole over that period of time. And here's your problem. You need to have identified them 15 years beforehand. And that's really difficult. And, but, and you'll see some fund houses and some fund managers sort of indicate growth that might be better. I remember doing a study on uh, Anthony Bolton, who's, who's been retired probably a decade or more now. But he, for over 25 years, was running the Fidelity Special Situations Fund. And over the 25-year period that he had been managing that fund, which is a combination of global and UK special situation stocks, that special situation things is important. But over that period, he'd achieved just over 19% per annum, considerably better than the market as a whole, uh, and considerably better than a lot of his peer groups. But special situations isn't the market. It's a slice of the market. It's value stocks, those that at the time are undervalued, where you have to hold your nerve and sort of buy things because the rest of the market saying that's not worth the money. And also generally smaller company stocks, crisis stocks. So special situations is a small part of the market. It was hugely volatile. There were periods of years where it underperformed and you'd have to hold that stock. And I think Bolton said, you know, because they, they kind of looked, he, he couldn't, he didn't think there was a single investor that had held the fund from start to finish. Because most people would say, hey, Bolton's on a run now. He's got his mojo back. Let's dive in close to the top end of value investing. And then it comes down. They hold it for a bit longer until they think, well, if I hold, I'm going to lose my money, I'm going to lose all my money. And they bail out. And they just keep repeating that cycle. So the average investor in the Bolton fund, even the Bolton fan, might have only got, you know, five or six percent annualized return from their investment instead of the 19 percent that he achieved. 
But here's the extra bit of research that I did. When I started looking at the, the, the value index and small company index over that same period, it was again just about 19%. So he had barely beaten the index. Well, actually, he'd beaten it by a bit. He probably had to achieve probably 23% a year because by the time you've taken off their charges and, and such like, he's had to outperform the market. But you'd had to know that 25 years beforehand and you'd have had to keep the faith in that one fund manager for 25 years through the good times and the bad times. And investors don't do that. But it is easy to keep the faith in the market. And ultimately, at the end of the day, this is all about getting a strategy that you are happy to stick with through thick and thin because investing is a long-term game. This isn't a make a million pounds in one year and retire. This is about 20, 30, 40 years of just constantly doing the same thing. And over time, as your charts demonstrated, historically speaking, past performance is not an indicator of future returns or whatever you have to say, you know, you would have done very well. And if you want a real life example, maybe from my generation, you've got to mention Neil Woodford. You know, if you want to get, have a look at Neil Woodford. He was a star fund manager for years at Invesco Perpetual. He was just unbeatable. And then he started his own fund because he was just so good. He couldn't be touched. An amazing active manager. He started his own fund and have a little look uh, what happened next because that was ugly. And it just shows that consistently outperforming the market over many, many, many years is incredibly difficult. And even Neil Woodford, who at one stage was being lauded as the god of UK investing, he couldn't manage it, unfortunately. No, and you know there are people trapped in funds that they can't get out of now with big losses. You just spoiled my punchline. I was like, that was a teaser for people to like go and look at Neil Woodford, and uh, you just you just out. ruined my punchline there, uh, Dennis. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I would never edit you out. That was awesome. A great run through there. Hopefully, we kept it accessible. What's our kind of take homes? And also, let's not forget to mention the Century Plan podcast, whose fourth season is coming soon, I believe. It'll be our third. It just feels like four. I've been there since the first season. Maybe that's why it feels like four to me. Um, no, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, what was the kind of take-homes for this? Uh, summarize this incredibly complex talk in two sentences. Trying to invest based on emotion is not a good idea. Invest based on data. So what, is you, what do you need to do? What can you afford to do? And your emotional response to that is the least important, I think, is, is, is sort of the core key. The other one we've looked at is that fees, how much you pay for funds, investments, platforms, and advice is important. And it's probably the single most important thing that you as an individual can influence. Um, but don't expect to get it for free because you won't. Um, and indexing. If you're investing over the long term, be an investor, not a speculator. Investors just go for the long run. Speculators are trying to hit the ball out of the park with every 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 ball that comes their way it's not going to happen we've just seen it's it. like you've it's like you've watched me uh playing cricket there uh, Dennis. it's not cricket season at the moment and hopefully i'll be back out there if the hand gets better but dennis that was amazing uh check out the century plan podcast all your podcast players and yellowtail financial what's your website oh uh, yellowtail.co.uk yellowtail.co.uk Thank you so much for that dennis i love it um i love your podcast because like i said people would expect Financial advisors maybe to be like, uh, buy this, sell that. But actually, it's more about the psychology of money. And that is a massive part of the game. So check out Dennis's podcast as well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tommy.